we're going to be looking this morning at this passage in, in Psalm 103 on the theme of the father you always wanted. I, I realize that talking about fathers, even on Father's Day, is, is kind of like walking through a minefield. Uh, because although each one of us has had a father, our experience of our fathers is far from uniform, right? I mean, there's just so much diversity in how we experience fathers. And for some of us, when we talk about God as a father, it's, it's a pretty easy thing for us because we had good fathers, if not great fathers, growing up. And so we hear all this stuff about God as a father, and we, we have this head start. And like our earthly fathers are for us kind of a springboard. And we say, yeah, my, my dad was really great, but, but God's even greater. And, and so we have kind of that head start. For others of us, it's, it's really not that way at all. Um, for others of us, our fathers were maybe not even there. Uh, maybe they abandoned you early on. Maybe the way that they related to you and, and others in your family was mean and cruel, maybe even abusive. And when you see the scriptures speak about God as a father, there's a big disjunct there for you. And the only way you can grasp that is by contrast. It's not by analogy, it's by contrast. I had an awful father, but God, on the other hand, is this great father. He's the father I always wanted. Um, the rest of us are, are kind of in, in between, in the gray area, where we had good dads who, who stayed the course, who, who did great things for us, but they failed in some ways as well. Uh, and we find ourselves coming to a, a day like Father's Day, and all those thoughts kind of come into our mind. Well, Psalm 103 does speak about God as, as a father, but it's, it's a father who's on our side and who's in our court. Let me read to you verses 8 through 18 of Psalm 103. There David writes, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Psalm 103 speaks of a God who knows us and a God who shows us kindness, a father uh, who welcomes us and embraces us and, and loves us. And that love of the father, the embrace of the father, we've just finished a series on the prodigal son a few weeks ago, and the very last sermon was on that embrace of, of the father. And it's something that deep down we all long for that. St. Augustine wrote the famous words in his confession, as a prayer, he said, Lord, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
And that's the, the warmth, that's the, that's the embrace that we long for that I want to talk about this morning. Several years ago, like 30 years ago now, I think it was, uh, Lois and I were uh, at our first church and we were asked to participate in a conference up in Northern California for uh, church planters and, and pastors. And they asked me to speak on a few issues and then they asked Lois if she would lead worship uh, for the conference. It was a two or three day conference. So it was really a lot of work for her. And we both went up and we had a great time. We uh, lost led the worship. And it was one of those conferences where at the end of the conference, they pass out evaluation sheets. And everyone gets to comment on not just the speakers, but like the food, the hotel, the, uh, the accommodations, even the worship leader, the music, and the, the worship time. They just commented on everything. And then they would collate them together and eventually send them out to those who were leading in, in the conference so they could get that kind of feedback. And so at the end of the conference, they handed these out, and Lois and I filled ours, ours out. We showed them to each other, and then oh, we didn't think about it anymore. And like six or eight weeks later in the mail, we get the results. And, and we each got each other's, you know, the whole results of everyone that was, uh, that was polled for this questionnaire. And, and being the, the very selfless person I am, I went right to what they were saying about me, you know. It's, it's like, you know, when you see a group picture, who do you look at first? You know, everyone could be closed eyes and drooling, but if you look good, it's a great picture, you know. That's kind of how we look at it. And I looked at my uh, comments and I was like, oh, you know, it wasn't like over the top, but it was solid, good. I felt good about it and I kind of tucked it away. And I, I then noticed for the next day or so, next couple of days actually, that Lois was just kind of off her game. Something was, was bugging her. I could, I could tell something was bothering her. And I, I finally said, Lois, what's wrong? You, you, you look a little preoccupied. And she goes, well, it was the evaluation forms we got the other day. And I said, well, what, what did you say that has you upset? She goes, well, a lot of people said nice things, but someone commented that the worship leader did not have a solo quality voice. And I, you know, I kind of gave her a hug. I said, honey, I know who wrote that. And she goes, you do? I said, yeah, I do. And she goes, how do you know? And I said, well, I, I saw it before they turned it in. And she says, well, who would have written something like that? And I said, you did. <laughs> You wrote it about yourself uh, is what, ha what happened. Lois, if you know Lois, it makes perfect sense. She's at the end of, a, end of a conference. She's totally spent. She's tired. She's given it her all. And she gets a questionnaire like that. And she doesn't have time. You know, in her mind, this is, this is silly. So she, she wrote down the worship leader didn't have a solo quality voice. And her name was at the top. She figured that whoever collated all this would get a chuckle out of it. That's one of her goals in life is to make people laugh. And, and she thought, well, someone will get a kick out of this. Um, and then they'll, they'll delete it when they, when they send it out. Well, they didn't delete it. And it's like six, eight weeks later, and Lois had completely forgotten that she had written this about herself. And so for two or three days, she's in this deep funk about someone who criticized her lack of a, of a solo quality voice. And uh, we laugh about that today. Lois is always looking for morals from stories like that. And the moral that she took away from that is be careful when you criticize because the feelings you hurt may be your own. <laughs> <laughs> But what I always take from that story is another moral. It's a moral that, that says it's really important 
what we say to ourselves about ourselves. That has power for each of us. Uh, it, it shapes how we think of ourselves, how we relate to other people, how we even relate to God. This passage in Psalm 103, I read the beginning of it at the beginning of worship. And if you, if you listen to it, you realize that David is speaking to himself. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And at the very end of Psalm 103, he ends it by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. All of these things that we read in verses 8 through 18 are self-talk for David. He's reminding himself of what is true about God and his relationship to him. And so as I look at this this morning, I want to, I want to share with you three things that, that I take away from these verses that we read a little bit earlier. I'm not going to dive into the weeds, the weeds of the verses and, and, and dissect them, but I'm just going to say if these words really are true, there's three truths that we need to remind ourselves about ourselves and about our relationship with our Father. And the first thing is this, that my Father is not ashamed of me. <clears throat> my Father is not ashamed of me. In Psalm 103, we have all these different ways that are mentioned where God's forgiveness is expressed. And one of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, where in that context, the writer is talking about all kinds of people in the Old Testament who were men and women of faith. And he's specifically in that context talking about Abraham. And he makes the comment that because of Abraham's faith, God is not ashamed to be called his God. God's not ashamed to be called his God. When you think about Abraham, there's a lot that you would put on the good side of his ledger, but there were a few things where he really fell short. I think the, the two things that really stand out to me were two things that he did, which was one and the same thing, actually. He did it two times. When he went into the promised land, uh, he was in fear of his life because his wife, Sarah, was so beautiful. And he thought that the kings and the leaders in the, in the countries that they were going into might seek to eliminate him because his wife was so beautiful. So he said, let's say that you're my sister. And he ended up putting his wife in, in a really very dangerous situation in order to cover himself. And when it was all done, he repented of that. And he, he, I'm sure he had many, many ways he apologized to his wife for what he had done. But a few years later, they're going down into Egypt and the same thing happens. And he does it again. It's, it's probably the largest act of cowardice that you find in the Old Testament, I would say. He sold his wife out, as it were. And yet God says, even though there's issues like that in your life, and you think about David's life and the great heights that he achieved, but also some very serious shortcomings and failures and sin on his part. And yet David senses that God has separated him from those sins and has forgiven him and, and as the writer of Hebrews says, he's not ashamed of him. Some of you may say, well, I'm, I'm, that's good news for me. I'm ready to embrace that. I'd, I'd love 
to have that, that soak in, but others won't let me move on. They keep me tied to things in my past that, that bring shame upon me, and it's always in front of me. I had a pastor once who, one of my pastors, who said that a reputation is too heavy of a load for a child of God to carry. He said, let's worry less about what others think of us and be more astonished at what our Father says is true about us. Think less of what people think of you and be more astonished at what the Father says is true of us. David certainly had that experience in his life. Um, When he looked back on his life, there were two times in his life where he was at the point of utter confusion because of his enemies. Early on in his life, when he was declared to be the next king, King Saul, who was the king at the time, was very jealous of David, hated David, wanted to kill David before David would take the throne. And he chased after David, and David went on the run. And David lived in caves, and he was an outcast. He was a fugitive. Later on, after he became king and his children grew up, one of his older kids, Absalom, uh, wanted to become the king. And he worked to uh, basically come up with a coup. He'd sit at the gate and listen to everyone's complaints and say, well, yeah, if it were me, I'd be doing it different. I'd be doing it differently than what my dad is. And he was currying the favor of all these people. And David eventually had to once again be a fugitive and go out. And so there were these two times in David's life where, where he found himself on the run. He found himself being accused. A lot of things that were being said about him that he was hearing from other people. And it was a very confusing time for him. He wrote Psalm 7 at one of those times. And, and Psalm 7 is basically saying, God, I can't sort this out anymore. It's so confusing what I think I know about myself and what everyone else is saying about me. And he says, I, I really don't know where the truth is. And so he says two things. He says, first of all, God, if, if what they say is true about me, then he says, take me out. I deserve to be taken out if what they say is true about me. But he says, secondly, if, if it's not true, then be my refuge. Be my strong tower. Protect me from, from those words of the enemy. David realized how important it was to counter the truth with, uh, to counter lies with the truth in his life. And that's what we see in Psalm 103. He concludes, my father is not ashamed of me. The second thing that I want you to see from this text is that you can tell yourself, I don't have to hide from him or pretend. I don't have to hide from him or pretend. Um, Hiding from God is something that went all the way back to our first parents, isn't it? Adam and Eve fell into sin, and the first reaction they had was in that time of the day when God would come and, and commune with them, they were hiding from God because they were ashamed. And God had to call them out from their hiding uh, and, and, and say to them, yeah, you blew it. You brought sin into the world. Things are going to be different from now on. They're going to be very hard because of the, of the sin that you committed, the mistakes you've made. But he says the story isn't over. And he gave to them hope. In, in this verse in Genesis 3.15 where it's, it's very cryptic. I'm not sure how much they understood of it, but they, he said that the, the seed of the woman was, was going to basically, down the road, take care of the serpent. 
It's going to take care of the serpent. And it was, as we look back on it, we see, well, he's talking about eventually that Christ would come and Christ would overturn and reverse the effects of sin in the world. And so there's good news. There's gospel that's there even even in the garden. And it enabled Adam and Eve to stop hiding uh, from the Lord and realize that God was someone that they didn't have to pretend in front of. Our kids, we used to love playing hide-and-seek with our kids, and that's kind of translated now over into our our grandkids. We love playing hide-and-seek with them, and our kids, our grandkids love it too. One of our favorite videos is of our our grandson, Bobby, who is sitting uh, at a table, and he had just got a new pet, just got a new pet, and the first thing he wants to do is play hide-and-seek. And so at the beginning of the video, his head is down and he's counting seven, eight, nine, ten. And he looks up and his pet is right in front of him. And he says, oh, he's still not hiding. And his pet was a goldfish in a bowl. (laughs) He somehow thought that the fish would jump out and go in the closet or or some way. he just loves playing hide-and-seek. But, you know, playing hide-and-seek with kids is a stack deck, isn't it? They don't really understand how to play the game, and, and it's, it's always fun. You know, when, when I would say, kids, go hide, and I'll count to 30, and I count, and I go, well, I wonder where they are. You know, I'd yell out, and they go, we're back here, you know, and, and you just kind of follow the voice, and, and finally they realize, hey, this isn't fair. You know, Dad's not being fair about this, so... I go, I wonder where they are, and it's like silence. And I had this other tactic. I had to up my game a little bit. And the other, the second tactic, second stage of, of hide-and-seek was to get back in the hallway and say to Lois, I can't find them. You know, I think I'm just going to go out in the living room and watch TV for a while, and maybe, maybe, you know, I'll come back later on and try to find them. And as soon as I would say that, I'd hear this voice, keep trying. We're back here, <laughs> you know. Because here, here's the reason why. Ultimately, everyone wants to be found. We play hide-and-seek, but everyone wants to be found. Deep down in our hearts, we want to be found. The Apostle Paul wanted to be found. He wanted to be found by God. And as he grew up as a, as a good Israelite in the first century, it was his understanding that the way to be found by God and to be noticed by God would be to do everything right. And so in, in the book of Philippians, he talks about what he did. He says, you know, I was born in the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. With regard to the law, I was blameless. I did this, I did that. I even persecuted the church. You know, he said, that's kind of the crowning uh, achievement of his as, as an Israelite. And what he goes on to say, though, in Philippians 3 is that he realized that that wasn't going to be enough. He talked in another portion of his letters about trying to follow the Ten Commandments and how he could just kind of go down one through nine and and check them off. But then he got to the tenth one, and it says, don't covet. And so while those first nine, you can look at those and, and kind of objectively say, well, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. But when the tenth one comes along and says, you can't even think about doing that. You can't even want to do that. If you want to do that, it's just as bad as if you did it. You don't covet. 
you not only don't commit adultery, you don't covet your neighbor's wife. You not only don't steal, you don't think about stealing. You don't, you don't covet other people's stuff. And Paul says he realized right then it was an impossible standard for him. He realized that there was no solo quality obedience that could please God and allow him to be found by God. And he goes on in Philippians 3. He says, all of these things, when I realized that, they were like rubbish to me. They were trash. And I gave them all up, he says, in order to be found. He says, in order to be found by in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And so Paul is saying that what God will notice is the obedience of Christ. And that obedience counts for us in the gospel. And Jesus erased the debt of our sin, but he also gave us the credit of his righteousness. And because of that, uh, God is not ashamed of us. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. This passage says to us that uh, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with his children's children. Uh, Psalm 24 talks about who can ascend the hill of the Lord. And it says, well, it's very easy. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That sounds wonderful, but how are you doing with that? You know, (laughs) how are you doing? How's that working for you? There's no solo quality obedience that's going to find favor with God. We each need what Christ offers to us in the gospel. Our, Our pretend versions of ourselves are really expressions of unbelief. If we just, sometimes we think, well, if I just don't think about that stuff, if I, if I think positively about myself, I can overcome the shame or the guilt or the bad feelings that I have. But when we do that, uh, what we're really rejecting is the notion that we could have a father uh, who would love us unconditionally. We're saying we can, that's just too good to be true. It's too good to embrace. But friends, he does. He does. He loves us unconditionally. You don't have to hide from him or pretend. The last thing I want you to see uh, from this passage is that my father will finish his work in me. In Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul writes there that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ. What God begins and starts, he will always finish. And in our passage in Psalm 103, Um, It talks about the kind of life is so transitory. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over and is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. It's making that contrast between the days of our lives that are numbered and the everlasting nature of God's love for us because he will finish that, uh, he will finish that love. In 1992, uh, there was Olympic Games in in Barcelona. If you're an Olympic fan and you mentioned the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, most people think immediately of basketball because that was the first year that we got, we'd always sent our college players up until then 
And in 1992, he said, fooey on that. They're starting to catch up to us. We'll send the pros. So Michael Jordan and, and Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, all these guys went over. And the average score in the Olympics that year for the games that the U.S. played in was like 120 to 40 or something like that. I mean, it was crazy. And we're like, yeah, we're the best, you know. That's usually what people think about in of 1992. But 1992 also held a, a memory that is one of the most iconic memories, I think, in, in Olympic history. It was the story of, of a runner from Britain by the name of Derek Redmond, who was running in the 400-yard, 400-meter sprint. Now, those are two things that should never go in the same sentence, 400-meter sprint. Uh, I, I don't know about you. I can sprint maybe 40 meters, uh, but 400 meters is a whole other thing. But world-class athletes, you know, they can sprint 400 meters. Uh, and Derek Redmond had been a 400-meter sprinter for Great Britain for years. He had qualified for the 1988 Olympics. <clears throat> but 10 days before those Olympics, uh, he had an injury to his Achilles and he had, to, he had to drop out of those Olympics. And what followed in those next four years were several surgeries and recoveries that he had to go through in order to stay at the top of his field in order to qualify and go on to the 1992 Olympics. In one of the final heats of the 92 Olympics, uh, Derek Redmond got off to a great start. He, about, about 250 meters into the race, though, his hamstring tore. And you can't run with a, with a torn hamstring. And when you see the clips of it, you can Google it and see the video. You see the man just pull up and grab the back of his leg, and then he crumbles to the ground. And the medical people come out, and they're trying to, trying to help him, but he kind of pushes them aside, and eventually he jumps up, and he starts to go down the track. And by then, the race is over world record is like 43 seconds or something. So by the time he fell and realized what was going on and got up, the race was already over, but he was determined to finish. And so he got up and he, and he didn't even really walk. It was more like a hop. Every time his right leg would hit the ground, it, he'd, he'd fall back on his left leg because it was so painful. And he got to the top of the back stretch and was coming down. And as, as you watch the clip, what you see when he turns that corner is in the background, you see this guy coming out of the stands. And it's a guy who um, is kind of short and squat, and uh, he's, he doesn't look like an athlete. He's got a Nike hat on that says, just do it. And he's got uh, white socks on, you know, halfway up his calves with tennis shoes. You know, just the kind of thing that you're like, oh, man, what, where's this guy coming from? He busts through people, the, the security people that were on the edge of the infield or the edge of the field uh, to get through. They, they kind of start to chase after him. And I don't know what he said. I'd love to have had him live mic because he, he's basically telling these guys, don't bother me. Don't bother me. And they keep trying to, to get to him. Finally, he gets to Derek Redmond. And this guy is his dad. It's Jim Redmond. And when he catches up to his son, he says, Derek, about 100 meters to go down the back stretch. He says, Derek, you don't have to finish this. You don't have to finish this. And Derek says, no, Dad, I do. I need to finish this. And so the dad 
eventually put his son's arm around his shoulder and he walked him down to the end. And the whole time, the, the race officials are trying to get him off the track and, and he's saying, get out of my way, get out of my way, we're going to finish this. A little bit later on when he was interviewed, uh, Jim Redman said, whatever happens, he had to finish and I was there to help him finish. I intended to go over the line with him We started this career together, and I think we should finish it together. He was one of those kind of sports dads that gave up his life for the sake of his son. Often often in in families where athletes achieve that kind of excellence, whether it's in a team sport or individual sport, it's it's on the backs of, of tremendous sacrifice by the parents. And Jim Redman was that kind of dad. And he said, I've sacrificed and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you get to the end. We're going to go over that line together. And so here's the question uh, for us this morning, friends. Is our heavenly father as good a father as Jim Redman? It's not even close. It's not even close. If you look up Derek Redman in the Olympic record book, and look under the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. There's three words after his name for the 400-meter competition. And those three words are the three words, did not finish. Did not finish. And the reason those words are attached to his name is because what his dad did was illegal in the track sense of the word. To receive help from someone else in the middle of a race is illegal. So he was disqualified, and the record reflects that he did not finish. If we were on our own, that would be the entry for each one of our lives in the book of life. Did not finish. Disqualified. Didn't make it. But we have a father who realized that we couldn't achieve it by solo quality obedience. And when we think we've had enough, when we think we've been like permanently disqualified from receiving the notice and approval of God, God comes along and he says, let's finish this together. The race isn't over. My son has already won. Welcome to the family. That's the father you always wanted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in such a very strong way you redefined what it means to be a father. We thank you for your love for us that has changed our lives through your son. We thank you that you're not through with us and that you will finish what you have started. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.